Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Critical race theory is wildly maligned by those on the right, but poorly understood. My guest today, Dr. Victor Ray, can help us sort out the truth from the lies. Victor is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and as an active public scholar, his social and critical commentary has appeared in outlets such as The Washington Post, Newsweek, Harvard Business Review, and Boston Review. His new book on critical race theory, Why It Matters and Why You Should Care, is now available. The debate over critical race theory continues to be a hot-button issue across the country. Lawmakers in more than 20 states have put forth legislation to ban the curriculum in schools. The Biden administration is pushing toxic critical race theory and illegal discrimination into our children's schools. Sunday afternoon, educators and activists rallied at the state capitol against four proposed bills that would prevent or limit critical race theory and similar beliefs from being taught in school. Folks like Leader McCarthy and and Tucker Carlson railing against critical race theory are actually doing the nation a disservice. I'm Victor Ray. I am the F. Wendell Miller Associate Professor of Sociology and African American Studies at the University of Iowa. I recently wrote a book on critical race theory, and I would like to say that banning books about structural racism is a kind of structural racism. Sorry, not sorry. Victor, thanks so much for being here. And I want to get into your book on critical race theory. But before we do that, can you just tell our listeners a bit about you and the work you do? Yeah, sure. I am an associate professor of sociology at the University of Iowa. I've been studying race and ethnicity formally for many years. My work typically focuses on discrimination in organizations or how organizations use race. I have a chapter in the book on that. And this book specifically, I wrote in in response to the moral panic around race in the U.S. that's been happening over the course of the last two years. And I think that much of that moral panic has been based on confusion, disinformation, and attempt to weaponize anti-racist scholarship to achieve what I think are fundamentally racist goals. And so I wrote this book to try and cut through some of that propaganda, hoping that people committed to anti-racism of good faith, interested in what critical race theory is really about, would find it useful. In the introduction of your book, you talk about a few times that the police were called 
on you and your family. Can you walk us through those stories a little bit, please? Yeah, sure. So I chose to open the book with some personal stories about my history because critical race theory often uses personal narratives or stories to illustrate broader points about race in the U.S. So I am a mixed race, light skinned person of black and white. And I opened the book with a story about the first time the police were called on my family when I was two. My uncle had me at a parade in downtown Pittsburgh and someone assumed not that he was my loving uncle, but that he was a kidnapper. And they called the police and confronted us. That wasn't the only time that happened. I've had the police called on my father, who is also darker skinned than me. When he was playing in the yard with me, someone drove by our house and assumed that he, again, couldn't be my loving father, but must have in some way been a threat to me. I've had smaller incidents than that when I'm with my uh, brothers who are darker skinned, being followed around grocery stores or being confronted in ways that I am never confronted when I'm alone. And I use this to talk about just how ingrained or how normal these interactions are and how if I had been darker skinned, I may not have noticed the stark contrast between the way I am treated when I am alone or when I'm in a group of white folks or when I am with my family. And I think that sociologists do these experiments that they call audit studies in which they send black and white folks out to apply for apartments or jobs. And these studies always find rampant discrimination. And I sometimes feel like my life has been a kind of audit study, given how different I look than my family members. Yeah, it's certainly a perspective I don't know that we necessarily hear about so often, where you can really understand two very important parts of the equation. And you went to two different undergraduate colleges, the Borough of Manhattan Community College and then Vassar College. How did your experiences there shape you and your views? I loved both schools, but they're very different schools, right? So when I went to the Borough of Manhattan Community College, it was right after 9-11. It's a predominantly minority school in lower Manhattan. I don't remember the exact tuition, but it was cheap. I could pay tuition out of pocket, waiting tables in New York City. And I got involved in student activism there trying to get more resources for some of the poorest college students in New York City. And then I transferred to Vassar, which was upstate on, I don't remember how many acres, but I know more than a thousand. They have a thousand acre farm. And I was also involved in anti-racist activism there. And one of the things I noticed in both places was similar tactics of control and suppression of student calls for more resources or things that students had been asking for at a place like Vassar since the 1960s, right? Greater representation of students of color, greater things like critical race theory in the syllabus, alternative or critical perspectives, and more faculty of color. So it was really interesting to me that these organizations operating at very different sort of levels of resources had similar administrative practices when it came to race. Because I knew that I was the only Black person in the space, I wanted to have an open conversation with my new supervisor and the director, noting to them that my experiences as a Black woman 
was going to be completely different than those of my white colleagues and wanted to ensure that I was going to be supported. I told them things about myself so that if they noticed, they didn't form judgments about me. My goal here was to eliminate any questions or doubts they may have had about me being black. But all of that preparation I did didn't matter in what happened to me in the months to follow. And you link those experiences to the one-drop idea of race in America. How did we get to that understanding of race, and what impact has that understanding had on our country? The one-drop understanding of race is, it developed historically in a couple of ways. First, the earliest definitions of race in the United States were based on the interests of slave owners, right, who were often sexually assaulting enslaved people on their plantations or their labor camps. And they had a vested economic interest in the children of those assaults being classified as Black. So if you look at early laws around racial classification, it followed them up. But then over time, this broke down a little bit. There's a great book by the sociologist whose name I'm blanking on right now, but I'll remember. It's called Who is Black? James Davis, Who is Black? One Nation's Definition. And in this book, he outlines the development of the one drop rule. And he shows that later, once slavery was over, that the interest became tied to the eugenic movement. And so racial classification moved from following the mother when it was in the interest of enslavers to creating sort of the lines that we know, that we think about around Jim Crow. And so here, folks were worried about racial contamination, racial taint, and again, property interests and keeping folks under the rules of the Jim Crow order. So classification moved from the mother to the one drop rule, where it was any quote unquote black blood, any black parent, any black ancestor, however far back one was considered black in the US. And so I want to talk here about sort of how strict this rule was. Another book called Hitler's American Model, in which that book shows that during the Nuremberg, well, actually, when the Nazis were trying to define who counted as Jewish, they drew on American race law, but they actually rejected the one drop rule as too strict. <laughs> they were like, no, this, is, this actually goes too far. And so their rules were less stringent than America's law. And the rules of hypodescent under the one drop rule, the U.S., to my knowledge, is the only country that has had a racial classification system that rigid. critical race theory. We have been hearing this phrase. A lot of people have been attacking critical race theory, but none of them really know what it really is. So can you give us, in layperson's terms, a good definition of critical race theory? Sure. 
So I'll try and do this in a couple of ways. One is the formal way that critical race theory arose, and that was a group of law students under Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and a number of others in the late 1970s and early 80s were looking at sort of the victories of the civil rights movement and the Reagan revolution and realizing that those victories were being slowly eroded through a backlash and through the legal system. So the civil rights movement brilliantly used the legal system to advance substantive rights for Black folks and many other oppressed groups in the United States. And they realized that the law wasn't enough. So they started developing critical race theory to explain this backlash. After that, it spread. So They developed in the legal theory, they developed a number of sort of precepts like intersectionality that have become widely used and sometimes misused, widely understood. And it spread beyond the law to education, to sociology, to political science, to a whole bunch of other places. So now I think after its sort of emergence in the law, I think it's become a broad framework for thinking about race and thinking about why race and racism and racial inequality are so intractable. And you see them across so many sectors of American society. You see racial inequality show up in places that you wouldn't often expect. I can't wrap my head around why this is such a controversial idea. Is it just that there's conservatives that just refuse to see it for what it is or have manipulated it to fit into their own narrative? I think it's important to go to the root of how this started, right? This moral panic around critical race theory started as a political movement. And so I am very clear in the book that I think the folks who started this movement are propagandists. I think they're not interested in what critical race theory actually is. Do you agree with this book that is being taught that babies are racist? Senator, I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. But what I will say is that when you asked me whether or not this was taught in schools, critical race theory, my understanding is that critical race theory as an academic theory is taught in law schools and To the extent that you were asking the question, I understood you to be addressing public schools. I think that they are intentionally muddying the waters around this sort of history of critical race theory and its importance for a couple of reasons. So I just said that critical race theory arose to explain the political backlash, and it did a very good job of explaining, for instance, why housing segregation remains so resilient, why anti-discrimination law hasn't transformed workplaces very much despite being on the books for 50 years. Why schools have, in some cases, become almost as segregated as they were before Brown versus Board of Education. So critical race theory did an excellent job explaining these things. And I think during the pandemic, we saw the largest civil rights protests in U.S. history in response to George Floyd's killing. 
right after that, we saw a ton of movement around books explaining sort of the history of racism in the United States. We saw some schools adopting some of these books. We saw students, I know, for instance, I teach classes in critical race theory, and my students have become incredibly invested in the idea of following the protests of 2020. And so I think this scared some people. And they found critical race theory, in critical race theory, a scapegoat on which to sort of project their fears about racial inequality and the real uprising and the real changes that people were asking for. And they found a way to interrupt that movement or to try and interrupt that movement. And they have created a counter movement. But again, in the book, I really, I think debating with people who are acting in bad faith is always a bad move because you end up giving them a platform for their ideas. And that is what they want. They want the platform. They're not concerned about honesty and it can bring misinformed converts. Another thing that I highlighted in the book is that there's good evidence that for folks who are opposed or who think that the United States is already racially just, giving them evidence that it's not can actually deepen their commitment to the idea that it is. So for instance, there's a study that shows if you tell people how racially unequal the criminal justice system is, right? If they believe that it is just, they end up supporting more punitive policies on learning that it is unjust because it affects their sense of self and it's a threat to their identity. And we saw a similar study come out that showed the same effect when folks heard early on that COVID had a racially unequal impact. They started opposing mask mandates and opposing shutdowns, right? Thinking this won't hurt me or this won't affect me if they were in the majority. So I think there's a risk in how you engage and engaging bad faith folks can actually end up reinforcing their ideas. That's so true. And you may have answered this already, but just to be really thorough, in your book, you write that white backlash to CRT is a racial reckoning. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So in 2020, when the protests against George Floyd's murder spread, there came this narrative in the media that we were in the midst of a racial reckoning. And so I mentioned the bestseller list having a bunch of books about race on it for the first time or a rare event. There were things like companies saying they were going to contribute to Black causes. There were companies saying they were going to double or triple down on their diversity and inclusion. And this all represented a reckoning and a racial reckoning. And so I think that the backlash is also a reckoning. And it may be a reckoning that is more formidable in that the white folks, it's largely white folks fueling this backlash. One of the things that critical race theory emphasizes is that whiteness in the United States is often an unmarked category. So we don't think of whites as a group having racial interests as a collectivity. But in seeing this moral panic around critical race theory as a kind of reckoning, I think the laws banning books 
about race in schools, banning books about Dr. King in schools is a reckoning. Do you think the adults that banned these books have read these books? Absolutely not. No, no. definitely not. Absolutely not. Because I don't think a moral compass could let you ban books that say okay. equality and loving each other. These teenagers in York, Pennsylvania are standing up to the latest example of controversy surrounding history and race that is affecting a growing number of America's public schools. And there are some white parents saying, we don't want our kids to learn the real history of race in the U.S. or how things actually played out during the civil rights movement. We've seen this backlash used as a basic political weapon with some success. The former president said CRT was tearing America apart. Glenn Youngkin, who won the Virginia gubernatorial election by campaigning on CRT, and maybe even more troubling is that it's being used in school board elections across the country. What will the impact of this be? I think, as a sociologist, I think the impact is always up in the air because I think there are counter-mobilizations. This is really hard to say. I think parts of this could backfire. In terms of, I would just think of myself here, when I was a kid, if you told me the book was banned, like I was going to read it (laughs) because I figured that anything that grown-ups didn't want me to engage with was something that I should probably know a little bit about. So I do think there's a risk that this could backfire. What I worry is that having read about the history of this kind of McCarthyism, because I think this is really a kind of McCarthyism, is that it can lead people to self-censor the laws written about critical race theory or super vague. Whether they disallow what you know I teach in the classroom or not, they can still accomplish folks saying, I'm worried about teaching this history of slavery. I'm worried about talking about the one drop rule and hypo descent in class because I don't know how to thread the needle that this law is outlining for me. And so it can end up suppressing important information that I think is critical. I think this can also make it harder to solve our collective problems. So here I would say The research on folks learning about race, even critically in schools, shows that it's helpful. It creates empathy. It creates support for students of color. And that kind of cross-racial empathy, I think, is critical for getting along, for navigating current America, and for navigating the future of the country. And I think making that more difficult can benefit some folks, but I think it harms everyone overall. You mentioned what you teach in your classroom, and I want to talk a little bit about school curricula. First of all, is critical race theory used in primary and secondary schools? And if so, how? I teach at the college level. I don't think critical race theory is taught in primary or secondary schools. Definitely not in the formal sense of the legal theory that was started in the 70s and 80s. I don't think first graders are learning about intersectionality. I don't think first graders are learning about the one drop rule. I just think, I think it's a classic moral panic. That being said, I do think certain ideas from critical race theory would be actually good for kids to learn. 
I'll give this example of my son. When he was, I believe, about four, we were in the car, and he says to me, Daddy, why did the police kill Freddie Gray? And I'm not sure if you remember that case, but it was a case in which some police officers picked up a man in Baltimore and threw him in the back of a truck, and he broke his neck on the way. His neck was broken. He didn't break it. His neck was broken on the way to the station and he ended up dying. And I was shocked. I teach this stuff, but I was absolutely shocked because we're in the car. And so I figured if my son was old enough to ask, he's old enough to get an age appropriate answer. And I did my best to explain to him, sometimes the police do bad things, right? Sometimes, and this is tied to America's history of racism, which we had already discussed. I think kids deserve to know about their world. I think kids are smarter than a lot of folks give them credit for. I think they know what's going on around us. And I think they know when parents or schools are trying to hide things from them to a large degree. And so I think kids should, and I would also say the research supports me, <laughs> kids should get an age-appropriate discussion of race and racism and America's racial history. That should just be part of the curriculum. I was just going to say, Florida has passed a law that prevents teachers from teaching anything that basically makes white kids feel uncomfortable about historic events. What is the purpose of these laws? And I guess also, what will their impact be? This is super interesting to me. And I write in the book, like, America's history is uncomfortable. And it should make you uncomfortable if you are, like, a normal person. Why is everybody so fragile that they can't learn about the truth because it might, like, emotionally upset them? Give me a fucking break. Leave it to the state of Florida to take anything to the next level. Florida Senate Education Committee just passed a bill called Individual Freedom that would prohibit schools and private businesses from making white people feel uncomfortable when teaching or training about historic racism. Because according to Florida's snowflake-in-chief, Governor Ron DeSantis, who's been pushing for, it, for the bill, it's white people who need emotional and psychological protection in America. The other thing I would say is as a mixed-race person growing up in predominantly white schools, I was subject to some pretty uncomfortable moments in history class and in other classes. And so discomfort is a general part of learning and growing as a human being. So that being said, it is weird to me to think that children need to avoid all discomfort. So in the book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, James Lowen writes about this. And the thing that I think is really good in his analysis is he says that one of the things that happens when you water down or sanitize history is you make it boring. So kids who read about conflict and read about interpersonal, read about, you know, political machinations might actually be interested in history. <laughs> they might actually be interested in these topics. People who read a sort of like boring, watered down, homogenized, whitewashed, conflictless story of sort of American patriotism and greatness and myth, which erases histories. You don't know what it's actually made of. And you can't challenge it and you can't grow from it. And so it's one way of just keeping the status quo. 
Yes. Yeah, it definitely supports the status quo. And if you look at the report that the Trump administration put out, the 1776 report, it was just widely in response to both the 1619 Project and the critical race theory panic. It was widely panned by academic historians, but the point of it was to create sort of a triumphalist narrative of American history. You have a whole section of the book called Progress is Fragile and Reversible. And I think we are definitely seeing that right now. Tell us what you mean and how critical race theorists view the idea of progress. So this is one of the more contentious points, or what I think of as one of the more contentious points that critical race theorists come up against. And that is the story of American race relations is often told as the story of things are always getting better. We had slavery, it was bad. We had the Civil War, things got better. We had Jim Crow, civil rights movement leaders came along, they figured that out. And now we had Obama, we're post-racial, we hit racial nirvana. Critical race theorists were like, that is not the case. Civil rights wins are fragile. And the long periods of sort of bad racial stasis have been more characteristic of the U.S. than the brief movements around the Civil War and Civil Rights Movement that advanced substantive right. And so if you look at American history through that sort of frame, you recognize that after the Civil War and after Reconstruction, Jim Crow arose and lasted decades in which Black folks in the U.S. South had very few enforceable rights, up to and including bodily integrity and under lynchings that could be murdered with impunity, right? So the civil rights movement dealt with a lot of that, but then the advances of the civil rights movement around things like affirmative action and employment law also started to be eroded very quickly after. And I think we're still in a period of that erosion. So that's one way that progress is fragile. Another way that progress is fragile is, I use the example of the pandemic, right? So 10 years of convergence between Black and white life expectancy were wiped out during the pandemic. We know the stats on things like the greatly disproportionate number of Black and brown people who were killed by the pandemic as a legacy of structural racism due to both inequalities in employment and being in riskier employment and inequalities, longstanding inequalities in housing with things like Black and Latino families more likely to live in smaller multi-unit housing and therefore more likely to be exposed or just more likely to have jobs that didn't allow them to worked from home. They had to go in, they had to risk exposure. And so I think of it this way. We can even, I mean, if we look at the overturning of Roe, no win is ever final. No win for civil rights or broader inclusion is ever final. There are always folks 
reactionary folks opposed to those wins and dedicated to long-term strategies to overturn. And that is pretty central to critical race theory. There's incredible vaccine hesitancy because of racism in the past and how it deals with the medical community. I'm getting specifically to Tuskegee. From 1932 to 1972, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was a study conducted by the U.S. Public Health Service designed to study and observe the natural progression of humans infected with untreated syphilis conducted entirely on poor, uneducated African-American men in and around Tuskegee, Alabama. The study was run in collaboration with Tuskegee University, then known as the Tuskegee Institute, which enrolled 600 African-American sharecroppers from Macon County, Alabama, including 399 men with latent syphilis and a control group of 201 men who were syphilis-free. As an incentive for participation in the study, the men were promised free medical care, but were deceived by the U.S. Public Health Service who disguised placebos, ineffective methods, and bogus diagnostic procedures as effective treatment options. But I'm just curious as to what that correlation is. Because that also came up. Many states were trying to pass anti-CRT laws. And also, you know, in those states where we are seeing anti-CRT laws, we're also seeing voter suppression laws aimed primarily at people of color. So all of this must intersect, correct? Absolutely. I think they're part of the same movement. The movement denying that structural racism exists (laughs) and making it impossible to teach about it Like, it's not coincidental that at the same time, they are literally adopting strategies from the Jim Crow era when it comes to voter suppression and keeping people away from the ballot. I think that they are part of the same movement. And I would say that, you know, I write about this briefly in the book, that there's a long history of attacks on radical Black thinkers who challenge the status quo and the critical race theory attacks parallel very closely to those historical attacks on folks like Dr. Martin Luther King. Attacks on critical race theory saying it's a Marxist doctrine. That was a standard critique lobbed at Dr. King for his civil rights organizations. Yeah, well, we are moving into an election cycle. And so, you know, I'm sure CRT will be under attack again across the entire country. So what should people know and be thinking about when they hear candidates using CRT and maybe identity politics more broadly as November approaches? I would say that folks should recognize that Critical race theory has been taught in the legal academy and the academy broadly for more than 40 years. And it's only recently been dug up as kind of threat to the nation as part of what I would say is a kind of broader white nationalist movement that's looking to disenfranchise voters of color, right? They should take the propaganda for what it is, propaganda, and they should If they're interested in learning what critical race theory is, they should read folks who try and represent it fairly. 
There are critiques to be had of this theory. Academics get paid to argue. So there are disagreements among us. And so I think my critique of the identity politics, the way identity politics gets used is that it's like only non-white people or women have an identity. And the politics of white men is often seen as just normal politics. They don't have collective interests. So one of the things that I write in the book is the most successful identity politics in U.S. history are white identity politics. So the claim that people of color are engaged in identity politics is itself a kind of identity politics attempting to delegitimate their political needs. Everyone in a political system acts out of some degree of what they believe their collective self-interests are, based in part on their identity. So if someone hears this is identity politics, they should interrogate who that term is being used against and who it's being used by for what end. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Critical race theory gives me hope. I talk about this in the book too. Robin Kelly has this idea of freedom dreams and that oftentimes the most sort of liberatory politics come from folks collectively working together and trying to imagine better futures. And I think that's one of the things that critical race theory tries to do. It recognizes that these problems are hard. And it recognizes that fighting for a better world together is a way to make that world, right? To create solidarity. And so those are the things that, that's what gives me hope. Well, Victor Ray, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. Some of you may be wondering, what's the deal with the GOP freakout over critical race theory? It's everywhere and was even used as a GOP call to arms at a conservative Christian conference last week. The old Marxism used economics to gain control. The new Marxism, the new Marxism uses identity politics. And the result is something that looks nothing like America. There's no reason to believe that this new Marxism will result in anything but what the old Marxism resulted in. Critical race theory is racism, pure and simple. And it should be rejected by every American of every race. And let me tell you right now, critical race theory is bigoted, it is a lie, and it is every bit as racist as the Klansmen in white sheets. Okay, but here's the thing. None of this is random. This is the result of a highly manufactured strategy created by seasoned political operatives looking for the perfect wedge issue to take back power. It just blows me away that Republicans have decided that doubling down on white supremacy is a winning electoral strategy. Even more so, it is soul-crushing that they have often been right. Spreading lies about race, about gender, about sexuality, about our very history, both its flaws and its triumphs, will hurt us for generations. It is an existential crisis for our nation, and it will make it so much harder for us to right the injustices in our country. If we don't own our failures, we can't own a better future. If we don't develop new academic, social, and cultural theoretical models, we won't have any framework to get there. 
Why are we so afraid of understanding ourselves? Why are we so afraid of making an equitable America? Because that's what white supremacy is all about. Fear. It's about cowards seeking desperately to blame someone else for their own unhappiness. Someone with less power, with less access, with less ability to access the full benefits of their citizenship. We can't let the cowards win. We just can't. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.